Well, good morning, Bayshore. I'm so glad you're with us today, and I want to say a big hello to our online family. We got people all over the community that are listening this morning and at different times as well. So I don't know when you're listening, but I'm so glad that you're part of this weekend here at Bayshore. I want to say hello to some of our online listeners. Uh, Gary McNeil from Tawanda, Pennsylvania. Tawanda, Pennsylvania. Never heard of Tawanda before, but Gary, uh, uh, thank you for watching. And also Jan Michelle Jonas from Salisbury, Maryland. So, uh, hey, listen, I would love for you to tell me where you're watching from and uh, this weekend uh, when you're watching or this week whenever you watch, we'd love to just uh, hear from you and hear where you're watching from. Also, I want to say a big hello to the amazing Fenwick Island campus and Pastor Jeremy and everybody there, Joel and Brigida, everybody that's a part, Brad King and everybody. Just uh, love you guys and just so grateful for the Fenwick Island campus and what you guys are doing to reach that community. Also, I want to say hello in the Island campus to Jay, uh, Jeff and Gay Wilgus. Uh, miss seeing you guys, but I know you're faithfully serving down uh, there at Fenwick Island. So uh, Jeff and Gay, we just want to say hello to you guys. And also Doug and Pat Porter. So love all of you guys at Fenwick Island. Love what you guys are doing. And so, so grateful that you're part of this weekend's service. So we're in part two of uh, Pitfalls. This is a brand new series that we're doing called Pitfalls. And the graphic that we have set up here is the old Atari famous Pitfall uh, game. I heard from some of you this week that I uh, used to play this game. It came out in 1982. Dan, uh, I think Daniel Crane was the guy that developed it, sold 4 million copies. One of the most uh, popular uh, Atari games ever. But it was about uh, Pitfall Harry that would, had to go through this jungle, had 20 minutes to collect all of these uh, treasures in the jungle and there were all these obstacles and pitfalls that he had to encounter. So we're using that as the theme for this sermon series because we want to talk about the pitfalls that can befall us as Christians and followers of Jesus. And we want to talk a little bit about that. Last week we talked about distraction, how distraction is a big deal for people that are following Jesus. And two things primarily that can really become a distracting distraction to us, and they're really good things, but can become sort of uh, stretched out of proportion in our lives. Uh, we talked about how pleasure, uh, pleasure can kind of sort of take over our life, and God is absolutely for pleasure. The Bible says he's given us everything to enjoy in life, but sometimes we just get so caught up in having a good time and all of our toys and all of our stuff. Stuff, that we just really drift away from Jesus. And so uh, we talked about that. And also money was a thing that we had to watch out for. There's lots of rich people uh, in the Bible. Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus, uh, he, he was the one that helped bury Jesus. There's Abraham in the Old Testament, Job, all these really, really uh, rich and successful people in the Bible. But Jesus always talks about the importance of making sure that money and finances is our secondary passion in life and that the kingdom of God is our primary passion. So we talked about that uh, last week. So this week, we're going to talk about uh, another pitfall. And this is uh, one of the things that I think the enemy uses uh, frequently against us, and it's disappointment. He uses disappointment in our life. And, and, and I think that we have a real, uh, a, a legitimate, uh, an authentic adversary. I think, there's a, I think there's a real devil. I think there's demons that we deal with. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. And so I think we need to sort of be uh, wise about how we have to deal with the enemy. Let me give you a, a couple verses for us to think about. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 
verse 11, uh, this, this verse kind of verifies, number one, that there is a spiritual adversary that we face. Now, you know, if we're going to be successful in avoiding pitfalls in our Christian life, we've got to really, really understand that there is an enemy that there is an enemy that we deal with. Here's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. In order that Satan, that's one of the names for the devil, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Did you know the devil, uh, the, the roaring lion that the New Testament talks about, that he has schemes to trip us up? He has pits traps that he's set, and it says that we're not to be unaware of his schemes. Now, the word schemes there is really, uh, in the Greek, it's a word noema, and it, it's basically the mind. And so what, it, what he's basically saying is Paul is saying, make sure that you know how the devil thinks. Know how he thinks. Know how he operates. Know his philosophy. Understand his philosophy. So understand his theme uh, and the things that he does and the schemes he tries to get us in. Here's another verse that's, uh, that's important. Uh, it says in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So schemes is a, you know, is a big theme when we're talking about pitfalls. So the devil has, uh, he has schemes that he uses against us. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, this is a different word. This is a different word. It's not noema. It's not how the devil thinks. We need to understand how he thinks. He has a certain way of thinking. He has a certain philosophy of how he tries to trip us up. But this word where it says uh, the, that we could take our stands against the, against the devil's schemes. Now, that word is a word that really means, when you take the Greek word apart, what it really means is it's like a well-worn path, like a well-worn path. It's the same word that uh, is the word that talks about the, the guy that went down the road to Jericho and he was, uh, you know, he was attacked by robbers in the Good Samaritan story. It, it's, it's the idea of a road, a well-worn path, a well-worn path. So basically, don't be uh, unaware. Take your stand against the devil's well-worn path. In other words, he uses the same tricks over and over and over again. You know, if you've ever seen a, a path in a woods, it means that it's just basically where someone just keeps walking. You know, the, the, the constant traffic makes a path there. So there's a, there's a pattern of what the enemy uses against us, and he constantly uses the same thing. It's a well-worn path. Now, I think that uh, when you know that, when you know that he uses the same uh, tricks over and over again, it really helps you to be successful in life because he's not, he's not very creative. The devil's not very creative. He's basically, he's got one or two tricks and he just uses them over and over again. And ironically, we fall for them over and over again. Now, I would say that the three primary tricks of the devil is number one, distraction, he distracts us from the faith, and you can read about that in Matthew 13, about the par parable of the sower, that we get, we get distracted by wealth or pleasure. It's a distraction method. Uh, he uses deception where he deceives us. He gets us thinking wrong about certain things. He messes up our, our theology. And then he uses disappointment or discouragement. 
So basically, it's those three things over and over again. If you ever watch a baseball game, a professional baseball game, a pitcher, a good pitcher, has all kinds of uh, pitches in his arsenal that he uses against a batter. He may have a, a breaking ball. He may have a, a, a curve ball. He may have a sinker, a changeup, a slider. He's got all these different pitches that throws us off. Now, the devil's not a good pitcher. He basically has got a fastball, you know, and uh, maybe a little breaking ball. He's just got the same tricks over and over and over again. So today, I want to talk about uh, disappointment or discouragement because he uses that all the time. And some of you right now, you're battling with the devil, you're battling with the enemy, and you're discouraged and you're disappointed right now. And that disappointment is affecting your faith. And some people fall away from their faith because of disappointment, disappointment. Now, here's, a, here's one of the way, things that we get disappointed in. We get disappointed sometimes uh, because of our prayer life. We're praying for something to happen, and it doesn't happen, and then we conclude, we get disappointed, we get discouraged, and we think that God doesn't care about us, God doesn't love us, we're just like, you know, completely forgotten by the Lord, and he doesn't know anything about what's going on in our life, and he doesn't really care. Uh, I remember one time, uh, Karen's uh, mom and dad, actually her dad wasn't going to church in those days, uh, but her mom went to church and took Karen and her sister and her brother and came home from church and left Karen at church and forgot about her. And uh, that happens to, you know, it happened to Karen, and she was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, Her mom eventually came back, you know, a week or two later. No, it was actually the same day. Her her dad said, where's Karen? So sometimes we think that God has forgotten us. He's not listening to us, and he doesn't care about us. Now, here's a particular way that we struggle with uh, discouragement in our prayer life. We're praying for someone to change. We're praying for someone to change and they don't change, and we get disappointed. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this in uh, marriages. Maybe there's a marriage that's starting to disintegrate and break up, and and you've got maybe a spouse comes in, maybe it's the woman, and she's coming in, and she's coming in for counseling, and she's praying for her husband to turn around, and maybe he's, you know, got a wandering eye, and he's he's drifting away from the marriage, and uh, so she's asking and believing God, and she's fasting, and she's praying, and she's asking God to change her husband and to save her marriage. And I always have this conversation with those people. And we, we pray and we're talking about it. But at the end of the day, there's a line that God will not cross. And you know what that line is? God will never cross the line of, 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 of affecting someone's free will. And I'll always tell people, you know, hey, we're going to pray for Bob or we're going to pray for, you know, for Jill and whoever's messing up and whoever doesn't want their marriage to work and whoever, we're going to pray for them. But listen, I tell them at the end of the day, there's a line God won't step over. And that line is the line of free will. In other words, we can pray, we can believe God. We can ask God to to influence and speak to that spouse, but we cannot assure that that spouse is going to do the right thing because God himself will stop at that line and he won't cross that line because he respects the free will, the gift of free will that he gave to that individual. 
So sometimes people, they're praying for their marriage to work, and they're, or they're praying for their wayward son or daughter that's on drugs, and they're asking God to just change that, that child, and they're believing and asking, and they're praying, and they want that child to change, and so, and they're believing, and then that person, that child, that adult child doesn't change. And so the person that's praying gets bitter at God, God, why didn't you hear my prayer? Now, the reason that that didn't translate into what that person wanted, that, what, that person was praying for something to change in that person, the reason it didn't translate into success was because there was a line that God would not step over. He will not violate the will of another person. He'll speak to them. He'll convict them. And so when I'm leading uh, people in counseling and they're praying for that wayward spouse or they're praying for that, uh, you know, that person that, that needs to do right and they're asking God to change them, uh, I always help them to see that we're praying that the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that the influence of the Lord, that God will put people around that person to influence them. Uh, but we know at the end of the day that person has got to choose to do the right thing. And so if you're mad at God, or if I get mad at God because I'm praying for somebody to change and they don't change, we really have the wrong person in the hot seat. It's not God we should be mad at. It's that person that hasn't responded to the conviction and the influence of the Holy Spirit. I used to play softball um, our church used to have a Christian softball team, and it was pretty intense, pretty competitive league. I always thought Christian softball was an oxymoron. But anyhow, we used to play Christian softball. And I used to play left field. I was always in the outfield. And uh, I'm out there, and sometimes a fly ball would come, and you could see it coming. And I had to position myself. I had to move toward that ball in order to catch the ball. And if I got there in time, I, I could catch that ball. And everybody's happy, though. Our team is happy because I got the out. But you know what? Uh, sometimes, you know, you could stand in the outfield and a ball could be hit right, right near you. And, and if you don't respond to what's there, you're going to miss that ball. And if you got a person that the Holy Spirit's speaking to and they don't respond, the response is their responsibility. And you're praying and you're believing God to do things. Now, so sometimes people get disappointed. They get discouraged with God because they're praying for this to happen in this person. They're praying maybe for this person to be saved or come to church or whatever. Or they're praying for that child to come back to faith. Or they're praying for that, for that wayward spouse to turn around and come back to the marriage and do counseling. And, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Uh, it's not that God didn't minister to that person. It's not that the Holy Spirit didn't convict them. But it's basically that God would not cross that line. He wouldn't cross that line. He wouldn't step and override their free will because it's their choice. Do you remember reading about the uh, creation story, the Garden of Eden, that God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Uh, do you know where he put that tree? He put it right in the middle of the garden, meaning that every day Adam and Eve had to walk by that tree. And every day they had to make a choice about that tree. And so when you think about human beings, human beings are responsible. They're responsible for their own uh, decisions and choices. So don't transfer, we should not transfer our frustration with a person that's not listening to the Holy Spirit to God and get disillusioned with the Lord. Now, 
something happened to me uh, just recently. Uh, my, my grandkids, Nora and Nixon, are living with us. Here's a picture of Nora and Nixon. I just love those, these grandkids to death. They're just wonderful. This is uh, Nora Nixon, and Nora just lost two teeth, and I just love these kids, and they've been living with us for about a year, and their house is almost done, and uh, we just have the best time. But the other night, I, was, I went to get my hose. Uh, I was going to wash my car, water some plants, and I went to get my hose, and I had just purchased this summer, I had purchased a brand new uh, a nozzle, you know, one of those really neat nozzles. It has like a little thumb thing. You can, you can adjust the speed of the water and uh, paid about $25, $30 for this nozzle. And I went to get my hose out and the nozzle was gone. It wasn't there. Now, I just have to confess, my first thought was that Nora and Nixon had done something with that nozzle, you know, that they had taken that nozzle. And so uh, I went to Joel and uh, their dad and I said, hey, Joel, I'm not Hey, I just want to say that my nozzle on my hose is missing. And uh, I'd say, I, you know, I told him, I said, I never take that nozzle off. I mean, I always, after I get done washing the car, I just roll the hose up. I've got one of those little boxes that's got the hose in it. Uh, I never take that nozzle off. So I just can't imagine. I said, I wonder if Nixon and Nora just playing took that nozzle off. So anyhow, you know, Karen and I were getting ready to go uptown and, and uh, Joel had Nixon and Nora in the living room or in the kitchen there. And he's interrogating them about that nozzle. And he's saying, you know, hey, now, brother, we call Nixon brother. Now, brother, did you take, did you take that nozzle off of Papa's hose? And they're just, no, I didn't do it. And then they said to, to Nora, and, and he's got him. You know, he's trying to talk to him. And, and um, we get back, and, um, and, and uh, Joel says to me, and he says, you know, I, I, I could put him on a, you know, on a lie detector test. They're saying they didn't do it. I said, well, hey, no worries. It's just a no big deal. And uh, Nixon, he's out on the porch. He comes in and he opens the door. He says, we think a robber, we think a robber stole your, your uh, hose nozzle. Now, I just thought that's the funniest thing I ever heard. He said, uh, I th- we think a robber took your hose nozzle. And I'm thinking, well, there's, there's somebody in our neighborhood that's going around house to house, and they're stealing hose nozzles. So I, I just thought, well, you know, those kids, they're just really creative. So I, you know, I, in the back of my mind, I'm sort of blaming them, thinking, no, no big deal. Hey, I love my grandkids more than anything, so hey, no big deal. But I'm just thinking they probably did something with a hose nozzle. Well, I was cutting the grass the other night, and I'm cutting the grass, and I, haps, I happen to have two hose boxes on each ends of the house, and I'm cutting the grass, and I'm coming along the backside of the house, and what did I see but my hose nozzle hanging on the other box. So what had happened is I remember now that I took the hose nozzle off of my uh, other hose box because the, this nozzle was broken, and, uh, and I moved to the other side, and all of a sudden I had to confess it wasn't my grandkids that stole that nozzle, and there wasn't a robber. There wasn't a robber in our neighborhood stealing hose, hose nozzles. But you know what? We have a tendency sometimes to blame the wrong person for things that we are concerned about. And sometimes we have put God on the stand and we've said, God, we've lo- we lose our faith in you. We prayed for our daughter. We prayed for our son. We prayed for our marriage to work. We prayed for this to happen and it didn't happen. And so we are disappointed and it becomes a pitfall. 
And I can't tell you how many people, you know, they pray maybe for somebody, somebody to be healed. And we were just talking the, uh, a little bit ago about healing and how God heals people and touches people. And I've seen some incredible healings. But I've also seen uh, situations where God is sovereign over someone's sickness. And we're praying, we're praying, we're praying. And the Lord takes that person to heaven. And the Lord takes that person to heaven. And sometimes we get so disappointed So discouraged that God didn't do what we thought he should do, when we thought he should do it, how we thought he should do it, that we lose our faith and we fall into a pit. And so we got to let God be sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's providential over the minute details of our lives. And also, there are some prayers that we can become discouraged about and disillusioned about and angry about with angry God because... We aren't recognizing how God will not cross that line of free will. So sometimes that happens. And you know, another area, you know, with our prayers, we pray sometimes. Sometimes we're praying for somebody. What we want to happen doesn't happen. So that can become a pitfall of discouragement. And we can begin to question God. And uh, there's nothing wrong with questioning God and processing that. If you read the book of Psalms, it's perfectly legitimate for us to express to God our disappointment and all that. You read the Psalms and David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And we have the imprecatory Psalms, which are Psalms where there were just, there, there's people pouring out their emotions of disappointment, but they're always restoration. They always come back to faith in God. So that's something that can happen to us. Sometimes we're upset and we fall into a pitfall we fall into a pit because, because we're praying for God to take something out of our life that's painful. We want the Lord to take care of something for us, and we're asking him to take care of it for us, and it's not happening. Has that ever happened to you? You pray for something. You want something to change. You want something different. You want uh, some circumstances to be different. You want God to, to just you know, kind of wave the magic wand over the mess of your life and make things better, and you struggle because it doesn't happen. Now, I just want to encourage you, remember the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, Lord, I got a thorn in my flesh. I got a thorn in my flesh. Now, we don't know what the thorn was. Nobody knows what the thorn is. There's about 120 theories about what the thorn was. And I think it's ambiguous. It's it's filled with ambiguity. Ambiguity. It's filled with ambiguity. Help me say the word there. Ambiguity. We, we have ambiguity in that story because we don't know what the thorn is. And I think we have ambiguity for a purpose. And the purpose is, is because the thorn could be anything. It could be anything in your life. But we know this. A thorn is something that's painful. It's something that's painful. And it's something that Paul, painful in his life, that he wished was not there. Now, for you, that thorn may be a broken relationship. You can't seem to get fixed. Or it could be, you know, some circumstance in your, in your vocation. It could be something with your family. It could be some uh, illness or some weakness in your body. It could be a number of things. And you prayed about it, and you're saying, Lord, why won't you take this from me? And Paul prayed three times. Three times. Lord, take this thorn from me. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. There's a purpose for that thorn. And Paul had been given all this revelation, and God said to Paul, there's a purpose for the thorn. And sometimes there's a purpose for the pain in our life. 
And uh, I believe that God does wonderful things for people. He answers our prayers. He makes our life wonderful. I've seen God just do so many wonderful things for me and wonderful things for Karen and wonderful things for our family. And I know the Lord's done wonderful things in your life as well. But maybe there are some areas that you keep praying about it. You're like Paul. You know, somebody, I used to hear a teaching years ago. You only pray about anything. You just pray about it one time and that's it. You never pray about it again. And, uh, well, that's... That's an interesting concept. It's not biblical, but it's an interesting concept because the Bible says Paul prayed three times. He said, Lord, take this thorn away. And the thorn wasn't getting anywhere. It wasn't going away. And, and so the Lord, uh, Paul made it more clear to the Lord. Now, Lord, I, I just want to make this clear to you. I got a thorn, and you can take the thorn away, and please take the thorn away, and I want the thorn to disappear. And then the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you to discover my power and my grace in your life even when that thorn is present in your life. And so sometimes we struggle with that. Now, here's the difference between us and God. We have a different philosophy about suffering. God has a certain philosophy about suffering. And we have a certain philosophy. Our goals are different. We want comfort. We want God to keep our life comfortable all the time. We want comfort. We are into comfort. Now, Lord, you can make us comfortable. Now make us comfortable. The only problem with that is that God has a different agenda. God's agenda is not comfort, but God's agenda is change. He wants to change us, and sometimes he uses painful things to change us and to make us more like Jesus. You say, Pastor Dan, do you have any verses to prove that? Well, let me give you one. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I think it's verse 3, 2 and 3, something like that. Let me put on it. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. Now, how about that? How many, like, love that verse? You know, we glory in our sufferings. I, I mean, that's hard. You know what the word suffering means? It means pressure. It means to be pressed upon. And sometimes, maybe there's somebody listening right now. You're, you're under pressure right now. You're under some serious stress, and you're feeling the pressure. Paul said, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces. Suffering produces. In other words, suffering produces something positive in our life. And then he says... Uh, he says it produces perseverance. Now, the word perseverance there is the word hupomeno. It means basically to be consistent and steadfast, and you just keep on keeping on. And how do we know that uh, we're really genuine followers of Jesus is that when we suffer and we're under pressure, we have a consistency to our faith. We continue to follow Jesus. We continue to serve the Lord even when it's difficult. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, the pressure in our life, because we know that suffering produces. Everybody say at Fenwick Island right now, suffering produces. One more time, suffering produces. So what that tells me is that God's agenda for pressure in our life, he doesn't take the pressure away sometimes because the pressure is producing consistency and character and longevity and we're becoming mature women and men of God because the pressure is making us 
something that we could not become outside of that pressure. And uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let me, uh, let me just uh, read another verse to you. Uh, this is in 1 Peter, or excuse me, yeah, 1 Peter, let me go up here to it. I got it here somewhere. Uh, 1 Peter, here we go. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, Though now for a little while. Wow, now, now for a little while. Suffering's just a little while. You say, well, I've been going through this for five years. How can this be a little while? You know, a little while is a little while. It's a relative concept. If you put your five-year struggle next to eternity, it's a little while. It's a little while. Here's what uh, the Apostle Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And then he says there's a purpose. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth of gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. The pressure, the stress, the difficulty, the trouble has come to prove the genuineness of your faith to prove the genuineness of your faith. Now, you don't know, and I don't know, if our faith is genuine when things are going good. We don't know if we got the real thing or if we got a counterfeit. We don't know if we really, really have a genuine, authentic faith when things are going good. And I tell you, it's only when we're going through the fire it's only when things are tough, it's only when there's pressure, it's only when there's stress that we discover that our faith is real. Our faith is real, that we're going through an incredible trial and it's, the stress is there and the suffering is there and the pressure's there, but yet we're still serving Jesus, we're still loving Jesus, and I see it every, every Sunday at Bayshore. I've seen it for decades. I've seen people have gone through incredibly tough things and I look out there on a Sunday, and I know what their week's been like. I know that this has happened or that's happened. And I'll be uh, turn around, and I'll look, and I'll see their hands raised, and they're worshiping the Lord. And I can tell you, I know that that's a genuine follower of Jesus because they are genuinely following Jesus and serving Jesus. You and I do not know if our faith is real until we go through the pressure and we still are serving Jesus. How about Paul and Paul, uh, Silas in the, uh, the jail at Philippi? You know, they're beaten and they're put in the jail in the middle at midnight. The Bible says in midnight, at midnight in, uh, in Acts chapter 16 that they were singing praise the Lord. That's when you know that Paul and Jesus were real. Paul was really serving Jesus and he really loved Jesus. You know, I've told this story many times and I, I almost hesitate to tell it because I've told it so many times. When I was in Baba College, I just finished Baba College, I was working... Uh, for Shakey's Pizza in Pensacola, Florida. I was making pizzas, and, uh, and Karen, um, Tim had just been born. I hadn't gotten to church yet, and I was just out of Bible college. And, and uh, you know, so there was this uh, one day we were, we had, uh, somebody had put all these pizza pans in the oven to kind of like sterilize them, and uh, he brought the pizza pans out and was setting them on the table there. And I came around the corner. I didn't know they were hot, and I went to grab a hold of one of those pizza pans that had just come right out of the oven, and I'm telling you, it was so I burnt my hand and I'm like doing a little dance around and the guy that I was working with I've been sharing the Lord with him 
and wanting him to come to church, and I could never get him to come to church. And I was grabbing that pizza pan, and it was burning. I let it go of, of course. And uh, after all that was over with, I had my hand in the, in the ice water. Uh, he said, you know what, Danny? I'm going to go to church with you. I said, well, why are you going to go to church with me now? He said, because when you grab that pizza pan and you didn't cuss and you didn't rip and wear, I know that what you've got inside must be real. Now, I'm so glad he couldn't read my mind because I'm telling you, I was thinking some things really bad because it really hurt. But listen, your faith, suffering produces character. Say it with me. Suffering produces character. So when you're saying, Lord, take this away from me, take this thorn away from me, take it away from me, when you're saying that, that's all good and fine. But God has a bigger objective. He wants to glorify you. He wants to make you like Jesus. He wants to make you look exactly like his son, and he uses suffering to make that happen. Now, you think about uh, where does a diamond come from? Where does a diamond come from? A diamond is made over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, when a piece of coal is at, 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 under incredible pressure in the earth, and the pressure transforms that coal into, into a diamond. It's the pressure that God uses to transform us into a diamond to make us more like Jesus. So if you're going through something really tough right now, and we're all going through the COVID thing. Hey, listen, let's just let the Lord do a deep work in us right now and make us more like Jesus because God uses suffering. He uses pressure to make us more like Jesus and to bring glory into our life. Heard about the uh, little boy one time. He saw a, a cocoon, a cocoon and a, and a monarch butterfly trying to get out of that cocoon. And the monarch butterfly is trying to get out of that cocoon. And that little boy saw that butterfly struggle out of that big cocoon. And he went in the house and he got a pair of scissors. And he took that pair of scissors and he, and he snipped the bottom of the cocoon. And the, and the butterfly easily slipped out of that cocoon and laid down and fell on the ground. That butterfly never flew. That butterfly died on the ground. Because God had designed that butterfly to struggle out of that cocoon. Because in the struggle out of the cocoon, that's what caused the, all the chemicals to get into its wings so it could fly. And so God lets us struggle sometimes because he's transforming us into something beautiful. So listen, make sure you see the purpose of that. So sometimes we can get discouraged by the Lord not answering our prayers. And here's the last one real quickly. We can get discouraged because we've, we, we keep falling. We keep messing up. And we're trying to serve Jesus. We're serious about serving Jesus. And what did Paul say in Romans chapter 7? He said, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I keep doing that over and over again. Have you ever read Romans chapter 7 and thought, man, I get that. I understand that. You, know, I'm not, you say to yourself, I'm never going to lose my temper again. I'm never going to you know, say something you know, nasty again and lose my temper. I'm never going to do it again. And then here you go, three weeks later, you do it all over again. Or maybe it's some temptation that you keep falling over and over again. And listen, a true Christian, a true, a true follower of Jesus, 
wants to follow Jesus and do the right thing and serve the Lord. Uh, and, and so there's a motivation inside. But you know what the devil does? If he can't, if he can't get us to, uh, you know, to just fall into sin all out, he'll just let us struggle. We just struggle a little bit, and we're maybe falling here and there, and we fall a little bit. And so the devil just says, you, you, just, you just done that over and over again, and you're no good, and you just need to quit because you are such a, uh, just a loser Christian. You need to quit. And the devil says that to us. And I think the Apostle Peter in um, John chapter 21, remember he denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. He did the same thing three times back to back. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever committed the same sin back to back? You confess, then you do it again. You confess and you do it again. And, you know, the Bible never says, hey, just go do whatever you want to. Don't, you know, just do whatever you want to. If you're a genuine follower of Jesus, you want, you want to quit doing that stuff. But what if you stumble? What if you stumble? And every person stumbles. Every person stumbles. And some people have just quit the faith because they said, I can't live the Christian life, and I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And so they're just going to quit the Christian life. And I can tell you what is motivating that is pride. Because maybe the reason you're struggling is God is teaching you the wonderful lesson of drinking of God's grace and God's mercy. Drinking of God's grace and God's mercy. There's some great verses of Scripture. Uh, let me put this little love uh, uh, graph on the board here. Uh, that's something that I, I wanted to just illustrate this with. God's unmovable love scale. Just think about this. How much does God love you when you're having a good day? When you're like, you're like reading your Bible and you're not getting mad at people on the highway they're pulling in front of you. You're just living, you're worshiping, you're listening to worship music, you're living right, you're treating your wife right, treating your husband right. You're on your A game. You've ever had a day where you're on your A game? I mean, you get down and pray at night, you can't hardly think of anything to confess. I mean, you just had a great day. How much does God love you on that day? Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, and 10 is perfect love, maybe you think on that day, on that day, he loves you like a 10. There's a, God loves you like a 10. I mean, he loves you completely and perfectly. What about on your worst day? What about on the day where you hit your nail and you're building something and you say a cuss word or you say something you shouldn't say or you, you have a lustful thought or you do something really, really that's unchristian? How much does God love you on that day? Y'all think, oh, well, you know, on those days, I'm probably, he's probably really ticked at me. He probably made it three, maybe at two. Let me tell you something. On your worst day, he still loves you to 10. On your best day, he loves you at a 10. Doesn't matter what kind of day you have, he always loves you at a 10. Because our God is a 10-fold God who loves us perfectly when we are great and when we're not so great. So don't let the enemy deceive you on that. Let me read you a couple verses real quickly. We're coming to an end, uh, but let me just read you some great verses. Here's what the book of Revelation says. Revelation.